Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Thank you. Good morning. Can someone whip out their phone and Google adoration? Because I was too slow. Someone tell me what adoration means. Quick. It's like those old-fashioned Bible. Remember at Sunday school, first one to the passage? Wins a lolly. What they called sword drills, weren't they? Remember them? Oh, my goodness. Deep love and respect. Worship, veneration. We often use the word, oh, isn't it adorable today? Like, it's cute. Jesus isn't cute. It's such a much more powerful word than that, to adore him, to offer adoration, deep respect, to admire, to, what was the other word? Venerate. Do you adore him? It's a powerful song, isn't it? It's a privilege to be here, thanks. I've got to get this right because we talked about it, right? There we go. I was about to ask who's got a toilet, but we've all got toilets, right? <laughs> Have you ever tried to fix a toilet? This is me yesterday. We have, our house is reasonably old and the people who built the house put in a really nice kind of retro porcelain cistern, which we still have, and it's in my, one of my wife's favourite colours. And we're trying to keep it as long as we can before I have to replace it like I did in the other bathroom. But the little plunger thingy which makes the water go... <laughs> broke so I went to Bunnings because I'm Mr fix it but you can't get the washer for that anymore right so I had to buy a whole new thingy that goes inside that makes the water go but my wife likes those little blue cubes have you, have you ever used those you drop them in but not one two so I was super scared that this morning I'd be preacher smurf when I came but I did all right okay oh my goodness the toilet worketh. Everything is good in our house again. And I know you're supposed to be a licensed plumber, but how hard can it be really, right? <laughs> if you don't know me, my name's Matt. It's uh, my privilege to be part of the teaching team here at uh, New Spring. And as you may be aware, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been going through a series titled I Am, and we've been looking at the, the, the seven or so I Am statements that you find in the Gospel of John where Jesus um, uses or invokes the, the divine name of Yahweh, I am who I am. And this morning we're going to have a look at uh, the next statement that comes along, can be found in John chapter 14, 6, and we'll go there in a little while, um, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we all know that statement really well, right? Like it's, again, it's a fridge magnet statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and as I was thinking about this passage this morning and I was preparing for it, I, was, I thought, well, how do you speak on something that's kind of, it doesn't sound that complicated, right? We know it so well. But as is often the way, once you start digging, once you start reading in and thinking through really deeply what's the context of this passage, why is Jesus, why is Jesus saying it, who's he saying it to, and what is it actually meaning, 
Um, there's a whole heap of stuff that comes out of this, which I think will be a real blessing to you this morning, as it's been to me in the preparation of it. For just over three years, a small group of men have been following a rabbi whose name was Jesus. They've been learning from his teaching, they've been watching the way he lived, and they've been experiencing the outworking of the kingdom of God right before their eyes. They've been doing life together, eating together, traveling together, laughing together, crying together, sharing all of that richness with Jesus as a group. And as a result, they'd placed their hope in him as the one that the prophets had foretold would come. The Messiah, the promised deliverer. And yet even after all they had seen and all that they had experienced, they still didn't understand how he was going to accomplish that deliverance. They just didn't get it. As Aaron said quite correctly this morning, they probably, and the more national they were, the more they had this idea that the, that the deliverer would come with a sword riding on a mighty horse, as kings do, but not the Prince of Peace. So they didn't get it. They didn't understand how this sent one would accomplish deliverance. And then on one particular evening after they'd shared a meal together, and after Jesus had washed their feet and after, after Judas had left the room to go and betray his rabbi, Jesus began speaking to them about his departure. And I'm going to read a, uh, a, a larger passage. I just want you to listen in on this. We will we'll come to our selected uh, passage in more detail in a moment. But just listen to this narrative and what's going on in the room, and in particular the conversations that are being had as Jesus begins to talk to them about the fact that he's going away. And we're starting in John chapter 13, verse 31, going through uh, into John chapter 14. So when he was gone, when Jesus was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another, because by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I would lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after, even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Lord, as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, um, a story we know quite well, it's my prayer that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might allow your Holy Spirit to do what he does best and become the teacher of all truth in our hearts that we might get to know you more, what you are like, and who you are. Amen. So as many of you will know, um, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the I Am statements found in John. And Jesus' use of the, the phrase, um, or perhaps more correctly, the name I Am, is very significant. And we've been talking about that. But I thought it might be just helpful, just very briefly, to recap the significance of that name. Um, and how it's connected with God's self-revealed name, which is Yahweh. You might remember from the opening message of this series of several weeks ago now, um, that the most important text in all of Scripture regarding the name of God it can be found in Exodus chapter 3 and verses 13 onwards. Um, the context of that is that God has just commanded Moses to go to Egypt to bring out the people who are enslaved there in Egypt, to bring them out of captivity. And so the story goes, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. The phrase I am and the name Yahweh, uh, they both have their origin in the Hebrew word Haya. Do you remember we talked about that? This, this word Haya, which literally means to exist or to be. In biblical Hebrew, the verb haya conveys not just existence, like something might exist, you know, so to be is not an abstract, abstract concept, like this is, a, this is a microphone. It is what it is, right? So it's not just an abstract contract per se. You see, in Hebrew, to be means to be active. It means to express oneself as an active being. In the name Yahweh, God has made himself known to humanity as a present being, not an abstract concept, or not a God removed, but a present being, present with 
and for his people. And that's really important to keep in the back of our minds today. Present with and for his people. And this is actually a very important truth for John because all through uh, his gospel, it's one of the major themes that he weaves through his narrative. Because one of his major aims in writing his gospel um, is to prove to his audience who Jesus really is. That's his major aim. That he is, in fact, the Son of God. He himself is an eyewitness to the love and power displayed through the miracles that Jesus has performed. And so he wants to communicate to, the, to, the, to his audience some 70, perhaps 90 years after the event, that God, that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, a time of great persecution and tribulation and suffering and trouble when people in the early church were beginning to think, eh, I'm not sure what I've got myself into. John is writing to, to, to remind them, the Messiah is, I am. You can trust him still because this is who he is. John gives us a, an up-close and personal look at the true identity of Jesus. He shows us that Jesus, although fully God, came to live as a human, as a man, to distinctly and accurately reveal the nature and character of his Father, of God, and to proclaim to all humanity that he is the source of eternal life for all who would believe in him. This is why John is writing. Jesus' statement in John 14 and verse 6 forms what could perhaps be called a summary statement of everything that John is trying to communicate in his gospel message. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's unpack this statement this morning and see what Jesus is really saying. Because besides being an obvious reference to the divine name Yahweh, the use of I am can be best described as an intense way of describing uh, or referring to oneself. It's, it's like saying, well, it's exactly like saying, I myself and only I am. Do you get that? I myself and only I am. And as we've already discovered in this series, Jesus' use of the divine name prompted some serious pushback from the religious leaders. Some serious pushback. On a number of occasions, they actually picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. That is, claiming to be God. They plotted to kill him. They drove him out of, of the places he was. And there were times when Jesus had to, to hide because his time wasn't yet come. He seriously upset the established <laughs> religious order of things. But what does Jesus mean when he says, I myself and only I am the way? Just a little side note on Greek grammar here. And I know that's why you've all come this morning, right? Sure. The, the, did you get that? The, the, as in the way, the truth and the life is what's called a definite article. And it simply means this, that it has a direct relationship to the word that follows it. It's not complicated, right? Sure. 
the way, the truth, and the life. So in other words, when Jesus says, I am the way, what he means is, is I am the only way. Not a way, the way. Do you see how it works? Not a truth, the truth. Not any old life, the life. That's, that's the intensity of this word, the, 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 in the, the. Good, we've got it. Awesome. Greek scholars, we are not. It means he is the only way, except he's not. <laughs> right? Because the Bible talks about there being two paths, doesn't it? In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus himself tells us, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide for many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So there's obviously more than one way. So Jesus isn't saying that there's, that there's only one way. What he's saying is he is the way. So you see the difference? Just keep that in the back of your mind because that's important. And to understand specifically what Jesus means in this verse, we actually need to examine the details of the conversation around it that he's just had with his disciples. So um, hopefully we can chuck up John uh, chapter 14, 1 to 6 on the screen. You can, you can read along. Um, and we might just keep this up uh, for the rest of this, if that's all right. Uh, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And given, granted, I think, the unfolding events of the night or the evening, and to be fair, probably even the unfolding events of the past week, I think Thomas's question is actually a very valid one, don't you? Would you not ask that question? I certainly would. <laughs> Where is Jesus going? Well, he tells us. And though it's not specifically named, it's implied that the place Jesus is going is to his father's home. And most theologians would agree that this means heaven, what we would call heaven, our understanding of it, the eternal dwelling place of God, where God the Father resides, where those who believe in Jesus will also one day go. When Thomas asks, how can we know the way? Jesus replies, I am the way. I am the way. Do you see how this works grammatically? In other words, the way to where Jesus is going, the only way, is through faith and belief in his promise. We know this stuff. That all who put their hope and trust in him will be saved. Jesus is returning to his Father's house to prepare a place for us to dwell for all eternity with him. There's a wonderful picture here which we touched on just really briefly, I don't know, some time ago this year. <laughs> Uh, you might remember the sermon we did on the turning the water into wine. Do you remember that one? And I talked about the Jewish wedding custom. And I, I made a quick reference to the fact that that's in, in and of itself a broader picture of what God's doing in history. This is exactly where that kind of idea fits in. You see, in a Jewish wedding 
tradition, the, the way it happened traditionally, was that once it was decided that a, a man and a woman were to be betrothed or to be married, there would be a ceremony where they would pledge themselves to one another. There'd be a, a promise or, and, and a down payment, keep these words in mind, a promise and a down payment was made, if you like, that the betrothal would happen. And then they would separate for about 12 months, le legally married, but not living together. And that, of course, we talked about, this, that was the stage that Joseph and Mary were in when Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, the, the Son of God, right? The groom would go back to his father's house and start preparing a place for them to live. And that could take a year or more or less, depending on finances and whether he was a good builder or not, but that was how it worked. There was a promise made, an exchange, a guarantee of marriage. Then there was a time period where the groom went back to his father's house to prepare a house for him and his bride to live in. And when the house was ready, and usually upon the father's say-so, the son could then go to the bride, and we talked about this, literally lift her up and carry her back to the new house. And there'd be another ceremony where there'd be lots of wine and dancing and they'd swap O's again, and then they would live together happily married ever after. Do you see the picture? Jesus, the groom, asked his bride, or the church, the bride, He's already come once, and the Holy Spirit is the promise and the guarantee of the betrothal. Do you see the picture? Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for us, and when the Father says the time is right, he's coming back to get his bride, and he will carry us back to the place where his Father lives. Wow! Wow. I was talking with, might have been Richard just today, about how in, how in the Old Testament, even the life, even the way that the nation of Israel were to live, their customs and their traditions handed to them by God were a symbol of what he was doing in humanity. That's why they're a special people. Because their very lives, the very way they lived was supposed to be an, an act, a play of what God was doing in all of history, if it was done right. And we know they, that they struggled with that and it all kind of went south. And, but it was still there and it's still relevant. So that's why we're able to say Jesus, isn't, Jesus doesn't abolish the Old Testament, he fulfills it. So it's not irrelevant, it informs us. We're just on the other side of all of that now. But it still informs us, so we still need to know that stuff because when we know that stuff, this stuff goes cool in full colour, don't you think? I think so. I am the way. But what about being the only truth? Because in reality, ever since the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, there's always been more than one tr truth. There's always been more than one narrative running. And at the moment, there are zillions of narratives. <laughs> where, where there's so many narratives, it's not even funny anymore. Paul warned the early church on a number of occasions about those in the past and those who would come in the future who would teach a different truth. For example, in 2 Peter 2, but there was also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false prophets among you. Sorry, false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. 
In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. Did you get that? The way of truth will be slandered. You can't slander an idea. You can only slander a person. The way of truth is Jesus. Right? In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be delayed. Wow. And what about his warning in 2 Timothy? For, for a time is coming when people who no longer listen to sound and hold some teaching, they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Hello, that's 2022 in a nutshell, right? They will reject the truth. They will reject, reject the truth and chase after myths. So what truth is Jesus referring to when he says, I am the only truth? Once again, the context of the surrounding dialogue helps us to understand. Now, it's true that you can take this passage and talk about how Jesus and, and how God is truth in all... So you, you can do that. God is truth. We'll look at that in a moment. And, and you can use that text to prove this. But I actually think there's a, there's a better understanding of what he means here based on why it's given in this particular context. Because Jesus doesn't... He's just not spurting things out for the sake of it. It's not like he came to earth with a list of things he had to say and, oh, here's a good time to say it. He says it in a context of conversation with real people who are struggling, right? So what's he saying and to who? John 4, 1, have a look. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You might have, your translation might say, trust in God, trust also in me. I'm not going to spend any time saying why it's different, but it's actually the same. It's just they arrived at a different word for a different reason, but it actually means the same thing. But anyway, I think believe is the better word. But why are their hearts troubled? What is going on in their minds that causes them to doubt the truth of who Jesus is? Because let's be honest, they're human like you and I, right? Have you, have you ever doubted? Don't lie to me now. <laughs> of course you have. We all do. It's part of the human nature. We doubt. We, we question. We wonder. I think we gain some insight as to what is going on when we pay, pay close attention to the text that we have but also to the meta-narrative of the whole book of John itself, because you can't take a text out of a book and just isolate it. You see, as an audience that has the whole story, we know at this point in the unfolding story that they don't yet believe. We have that benefit, because we're in, what's it called in media terms, the fourth wall, we're, we're outside of the narrative, so we see all. We know that about the disciples, because we can read ahead and... and but in the story, they, they just don't know because they're, they're living it live, right? Does that make sense? They don't know. They're not sure. So as an audience, we have the whole story. And we know at this point that in the unfolding story that the disciples don't fully get who Jesus is. They've got an idea, but they don't fully get it. Um, that doesn't happen in the narrative till after the resurrection, actually. And at this point, I think it's pretty safe to say that they are somewhat confused and perhaps very apprehensive about what Jesus is saying to them right here in this room on this particular night. Think about it. 
They're expecting a deliverer to free them from the oppression of whatever it is, the tyranny of religion, Roman rule, whatever else is going on. They're expecting a mighty warrior, someone who will deliver them, but a revolution, an, over, an overthrowing of the powers, you know, the, the walking in of the proper king, so to speak. That's what they're expecting. But they get Jesus, born in a stable, in a manger, the son of a carpenter, lived a humble life till he was 30, then did some very interesting and amazing things for just a few years, three and a half or so, brought them along on the journey. They saw with their own eyes, they heard with their own ears, they experienced the kingdom of God unfolding before them. And now he's saying, oh, by the way, I'm going away. I'm going away. <laughs> do not let your hearts be troubled. Do you see why they're troubled? Of course you do, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? You believe in God, believe also in me. Lucky for them, Jesus knows how they feel. We have the privilege of reading on. We get to work it out. But Jesus knows in the moment how they feel. He's good at that. Thank goodness. Let's talk about Greek grammar again. <laughs> because at a grammatical level, verse 1 makes much more sense when you understand that the word believed is used in two different ways in the one sentence. It changes everything. Don't let this go over your head, but just absorb it. The first time it's used, it's indicative. And the second time it's used, it's imperative. And it's, it's kind of hard to explain what that means, except when you listen to tone. So it reads like this. You believe in God, believe also in me. Do you hear the tone change? You believe in God, believe in me. Do you see how it's used differently? Does that make sense? You believe in God, believe in me. That's how it works grammatically. And that changes everything and kind of opens the passage up for us. You see, the first is a direct statement of a present truth or a fact that as the majority of them, as Jews, the disciples believed in God. There was no arguing with that truth. They were devout, most of them. Some of them were a little rough around the edges, but they were devout nonetheless. They believed. There was no question. There was no doubt in their belief in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the second use of the word is more along the lines of an invitation. In other words, because you believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Because I am. And if that's not enough to you, then at least believe the miracles that I've been doing, because only God could have done those. Do you see how it works? You believe in God, you have no problem with that, and you're to be commended for that. Believe me, that I am who I am, that I am who I'm saying that I am, and the Father has given me works to do to prove that. So if you can't believe my word, believe what you've seen, because that's the evidence. So many of Jesus' miracles, and this is one of the reasons why the, the, the religious leaders hated him so much, and it caused so much division and tearing amongst them, is that so many of the miracles that Jesus did were things that could only be attributed to God, like the giving back of 
sight to someone born blind, like the turning of water into wine out of season, like the raising of dead people. Are we doing Lazarus next week? No, week after? Hello, can't wait for that one. Because that's like the, you know what? And if you didn't believe any of them, check this out. (laughs) I'm a bit jealous I don't have that one. (laughs) But you get the point, right? You, You can see what's going on here. It's an invitation. So when Jesus claims to be the only truth, he's once again affirming that he is in fact God. And we talked about this in the series introduction when we explored the idea that God is self-determining. Do you remember that? Just again, to quickly refresh your memory, because in simple terms, to say that God is self-determining means this, that God's personality and character are owing solely only to himself and no other. Nobody and no power brought him into existence or shaped his personality. He had no beginning. There is no reality outside of himself that did not come from him. There is no force or influence upon his character and no power except that which comes from him and is controlled by him. He is utterly absolute. There is no other God but Yahweh. That's what God is saying about himself. Is self-determining. This means then that God is truth, right? He is truth. And the problem that we have is that as humans, that as humans living in a finite reality with um, small minds, if you don't mind me saying that, I'm talking about myself, we actually have inadequate language to describe some of these concepts. Well, we have no words, really. And the words we do have come from our own point of reference. For example, we say things like God always was and always will be. Now, that's true, um, and it's the language you use to describe an eternal being, right? God always was and always will be. But even that description relies on our understanding of the concept of time, Was and will be are descriptive words that come from our point of view. Do you see that? Using our frame of reference. From God's point of view, there was no was or will be, there is just I am. That's mind-blowing, right? I don't want you to leave here with your mind blown. I'd like you to put it back together and keep thinking. But it's good to be stretched, right? I'm so stretched by this idea. I'm so stretched by this idea that the more we learn about God, the less we know about him. (laughs) That's not even logic, is it? But it's true. It's lucky that we can know him, (laughs) that it's not just about knowing him. Anyway. We face the same problem when it comes to understanding the concept of truth. All truth and reality are found in God. There is no truth outside of him. All truth is in him. God did not learn the truth. God is not simply whatever God's... Truth is not whatever God says is truth. It doesn't even work like that. It's much deeper than that. God is truth and truth is God. 
all truth finds its source in his personhood and his being. That's really important because it's not an abstract concept. All truth finds its source in his personhood and his being. And Jesus is the very personification and embodiment of that truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the, the, the truth. <laughs> and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's how John opens his letter, his, his gospel, right? Talking about Jesus. I myself and only I am the way to my Father's house. And because I am the truth, you can trust me. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you want to hear that again? Because I need to hear that again. I myself and only I am the way to my Father's house. And because I am the truth, you can trust me. So what about life? What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the life? Do we have any Zoe's in the room? Oh, that's a shame. I was really hoping we'd have a Zoe. You see, the word translated of life in this passage is the Greek word Zoe. And although it has several definitions, it's usually defined by the context of the passage that it's found in as it is here. And in this verse, it's a reference to eternal life. That's very clear. But not just in the sense of living forever. It's deeper than that. It actually implies an active manifestation of a rich and abundant divine nature of God type of life. All the fullness of his love. All the fullness of his joy. All the fullness of his power and ability in us for all eternity. Wow, right? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus is the life, the only life. The rich, abundant, divine nature of God, all his fullness in love, joy, power and ability in us, through Jesus, for all eternity. Through Jesus, we have access to the fullness of life that God intended for human beings from the beginning. We had that once. That's how we were created, actually. Do you recall the story? You do if you've been around. God made Adam, Eve, planted them as a family in a garden. And they wanted for nothing. That's what it says. They wanted for nothing because there was nothing that they needed. They had all the fullness of God's love, joy, power and ability. Planted in them, <laughs> so to speak. They were living in the fullness of life and they ruined it by accepting another truth, a lie that ripped the fullness of life out of them and led them into what all humanity now suffers through, uh, life not to its fullest, because <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. And God went, no, 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 we need to fix that. And so he set about a plan. That's what the story of the gospel is. 
I have come that they might have life to the full. John 10.10, we looked at that the other week, right? You guys are good, you're remembering. Because the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Or as the NIV says, that they may have life and have it to the full. And what's exciting about this promise, and I talked about this the other week, is that this full, abundant and satisfying life is not just a future experience. Because the kingdom of God is here now, right? We've talked about this. We've been talking about this for a couple of years now. It's not just something to look forward to, although we have that to look forward to. We actually have it now as followers of Jesus. A full and abundant life. That doesn't necessarily mean an easy life or a wealthy life or a life free from pain and suffering and death and sickness because that's not the reality of being human. That's not what full and abundant means. That's a whole different series, right? And interestingly, it's not a new promise. It's actually a very old promise. In, in the biblical storytelling community that I've been a part of for the last 10 or 12 years, we have a saying, it's not old, it's new, but it's not new, it's old. Because the story of humanity, when you look at it from God's perspective, is actually quite cyclic. It's, it's not linear, although it is, but like... You see the story kind of repeats itself. The story of Israel becomes the story of humanity. The story of the early church is the story of the modern church. Your story and my story are kind of similar because we're human. Do you get, do you get that idea? Like there's nothing new under the sun. We all experience the same stuff. This is not a new promise. Have a listen to what God said to his people way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the context here is that uh, Moses um, is or has, uh, is about to die and Joshua is about to become the new leader. So that's the context. And God says, now listen. When God says, now listen, that's probably a good indication that we should, right? Good. Now listen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to emphasise a couple of lines here and I'm just going to let you know that I'm emphasising them to kind of help you link this passage to what we're talking about. It should make sense. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice. I emphasise that bit in case you didn't get it. Today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and keep his commands, decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. You hear that bit? By walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today, I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life. This is God speaking. <laughs> 
Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. And here's the big underline. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. Hello. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live along in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There's the promise given to his people centuries ago. And it's exactly what Jesus is talking about in our passage today, kind of. Just as Yahweh invited the Israelites to walk in his ways as they prepared to cross over into the promised land or the new home he was preparing for them, <laughs> Jesus invites us to follow him as we live and walk in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Right? This is one of the keys to living the Christian life. It's actually what human flourishing looks like. I myself and only I am the way to my father's house and because I am the truth, you can trust me. I am the source of life both now and forever. It is Jesus and only Jesus who is the way to a life of flourishing, both in the present reality and for all eternity. The choice is yours, though as it is mine and I can't make it for you this church can't make it for you only you can make it and if you're already a follower of Jesus it doesn't mean you have to stop making choices because you know as well as I do that every day you have to choose to walk in that truth right yeah because you're not because you're not not human you're not yet where, you're, where we're supposed to be where, where we are where we're supposed to be here and now in the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven here on earth it's just a shadow or a picture of the kingdom that's coming. But how we live there is no different to how we can live now. It's the same. The only difference is that we'll be in the... We'll, I can't even describe what it'll be there. You know how it's going to be different. But the choice is ours to make. So I really, um, in order just to kind of close this morning, I just really need to leave you with a choice. I don't even need to articulate it because you already know what choices you need to make. You need to know what you need to choose not to do and you need to, I think you know what you need to choose to do. If God is speaking to you, then you make those choices this morning. If you would like prayer, then come and there is a group of people who are passionate and dedicated to praying and interceding for you. Um, it's confidential. Um, you can trust them because we trust them. Come and get some prayer. Find someone that you know, that you trust, a spiritual grandparent, a spiritual peer. Talk to them. And, and choose because God wants to he wants He wants. oh that you would choose life that's what he wants Father we thank you for your word we thank you for this beautiful picture in this I am statement um, this, this idea that you are um, you are the way you are the, you are the truth and you are the life 
um, and that it is only through you that we can come to the Father. And that's not... Um, we can sometimes, Father, we can sometimes hear that and go, well, that's, that's, well, that's a little bit difficult. But actually, it's very simple, isn't it? Because you invite us to come and you want us to come. So my prayer this morning is that as those who need to make a choice do so, that you would embrace them as you do with open arms and that as a community, we might continue to walk um, in, in your way and in your truth and in the abundant life that you have for us. Amen.